Jane Chusin is a global changemaker who's founded five charities, received a CBE from Queen Elizabeth, was named by The Times as a top 10 innovator in the UK, and has worked with Sir Richard Branson, Diana, Princess of Wales, Tony Blair, and recently retired as Vice Chair of Virgin Unite Globally. But this episode is about none of that. Because Jane does not see herself as anyone special, and she is not interested in big names or accolades. What Jane does see are individuals who have the desire to create change in their own lives, despite their circumstances. Jane believes that people inherently carry the capacity to find their own voice when they feel respected, understood and listened to, rather than when they are spoken at or given to by often well-meaning others. Jane is ever curious and drawn to the humanity and courage of people doing it tough. And in this episode, we free range with Jane about her incredible childhood, her instinct for igniting social change, how we bring death to life, and how we can all better connect with each other by making judgment fall away and ultimately see people without the labels that typically define them. Jane is an unassuming, absolute force of nature and invites all of us to consider how small shifts can create deeply meaningful change. Here's our conversation with Jane. Jane, you have described yourself to me before as just simple old Jane and you, you often say you want to just happy to fly under the radar and not sing your own praises and yet Sir Richard Branson has said about you, I've never met anyone quite like Jane. She is an unassuming force of nature who quietly goes about transforming the world and lighting up lives wherever she goes. So who is Jane Chusen and the simple old Jane? Oh, Sabina. <laughs> I'm here in front of you, totally bare and open to all questions. I think one thing, though, I've created the best job in the world, and I love it, and it brings me such joy. And that idea that to say I'm a good person is crazy to me because actually I've just created something around me that I love and gives me the energy to get out of bed with a skip every day. <laughs> Which sounds so simple, but so many people can't tell that same story. That's not their daily experience. I know. It's so, every day when I go into the office, and I do, I love it, and the office is a donated office, it's a beautiful space, I feel that joy. Often I walk in crying too and I leave crying, but I'm in a position to, to act on my emotions and do something about it. Mm. You said before we started recording, Jane, that you grew up in a truly happy childhood. You're the daughter of Edward and Joycelyn, uh, who are both doctors in rural South England or South East England. How did that upbringing shape who you are today? So my mum was blue and my dad was Tim. So she was, was an extraordinary woman and she, her mother died in childbirth and her mother was one of the first doctors to do well women clinics for people in London and she worked in the crypt of St Martin's in the field and uh, mum was born in St Martin's of the field and it was just for mum for her mother to die in childbirth for lack of penicillin so sad so mum was always on a, a mission to be a doctor but she was a bit of a wild thing too very wild my mum she hitched around America when she was in her early 20s so that was many years ago 
So I, I was very lucky. They were wonderful parents. There were four of us, four children. But there were always many more children because people, the house was like a magnet. And it was a big, rambling old manor house that was falling to bits around us. They wouldn't let anybody do anything to the house. They had a surgery, in, unless they did it themselves. They had a surgery in the house. And just every day was a lot of fun. Mum made it a lot of fun. And we'd go ferreting or we'd go out looking for mushrooms or if we were in the car, she'd make a beeline for the pheasants. So one of us would have to pluck it for supper. Uh, we didn't have a television. It was just, it was fun. She made life fun. It was no central heating. It was, you know, we all, I'm good with an axe. It was pretty self-sufficient. We had our own vegetable garden. Mum would go out in the morning in her bra and knickers in the cold in the winter in England and say, well, why put clothes on? Because I'll only have to wash them. So practical. She'd be out there in her wellies, but we'd be going, oh, mum, please don't, somebody might see you. Uh, no, it was great. It was fun. Oh, my God, they sound amazing, your parents. Let, let's go there. Let's go a little bit deeper into what it was like growing up in this household, Jane. You started to allude to something before we started this chat around your parents being very open sexually at home with each other. They were very open about their love and they showed it. So they always, this will make me cry, they'd always sit on the chair together uh, or mum would sit at dad's feet and they did that way into their old age. And uh, it was impressive seeing mum get up actually in her 80s from the floor, from sitting there, but that's where she felt most comfortable and safe. They were always very um, very physical with one another, very, lots of hugs and for us children as well, we were brought up to that uh, no inhibitions really I could tell you the story of waking up in the middle of the night hearing noises and there were mum and dad naked in the garden trying to save the magnolia tree because it was frosty hang on is that a euphemism <laughs> <laughs> saving the magnolia tree um, the magnolia we love the magnolia and it usually it would get frostbitten so we wouldn't get the magnolia buds so there they were, taking logs from the fire and putting them beneath the tree to keep the tree warm in the hope that we'd save the magnolia tree. We'd, that kind of thing, would, they really cared about nature and what was around them. And, yeah, when, when Dad died, I remember being quite shocked finding Viagra in his drawer, I guess as a doctor, you know, who's able to access it. And they always were very intimate together, which for us children was very hard. Um, but now I celebrate it and think how lucky they were. What do you think it was that can kept them so in tune and attracted to each other over so many decades? Really good question. I mean, Mum used to always say to me, you've got to work at your relationships. Don't, you know, the ones that come at you and you think it's love, wham, bam. She said, be careful because you're going to go through the ups and the downs. I think they enjoyed their garden together. It was a big garden. We were self-sufficient. They planted trees and roses, and every time a dog died or a fish died, there'd be a plant there in memory. They were very connected to the earth, very connected. And mum would, I don't know how she did it with four children, going off to surgery, being a woman, also teaching at Oxford, doing research into the pill. She'd come home, and I look at, I think now, and I think, how did she do it? Because I found it so hard, but she'd, always be fun and she'd never be moody actually that's not quite true in her menopause she got a bit fiery chased my sister down the road with a knife oh well that's menopause, <laughs> that's, really, menopause. <laughs> that's right that's menopause <laughs> and jane 
I mean, it just sounds so sort of fantastical and idyllic, um, that childhood and and yeah, certainly they sound phenomenal, your parents. And yet you've talked openly about the fact that you had serious dyslexia as a as a child. And can you talk a bit about that through that time and how that was for you getting through schooling, etc.? Well, schooling I did, luckily I was very sporty and I loved athletics and hockey and netball and tennis, fortunately. I went to a girls' school in Oxford and um, wasn't thriving academically and was bucking the system a bit, not surprisingly coming from our upbringing as well, where mum and dad were very non-judgmental. So they absolutely saw the person, not their label. They were very, um, yeah, they were. Very, it was a very open house. Uh, that's one of your favourite sayings. That's Jane Jewson's catch cry, see the person, not the label. Was that actually terminology that your parents used or you're using that now in hindsight? No, I'm using that in hindsight. I wish I could... I've got a very... Uh, my memory isn't very good, no short-term memory, which is part of being dyslexic as well. But going back, so one day mum came to pick me up from school. I was 12, I think. And I'd written an essay and I wrote about the oars in the bollocks as opposed to the oars in the rollocks. And I was given a two-hour detention. And mum said, you're not going back. And she took me out of that school. And I went to the local grammar school that was going comprehensive, where it was such fun and the teaching was for life as opposed to for exams. And I just had the best time, but of course failed everything. It was, it was, um, I was head girl and... I love my sport, but academically, a nightmare. Everything was back to front, sideways, long, you know, it's tough. What, it's what impact tough. is that? Because you, you tell this story with a level of positivity and, you know, great fun and support and love and passion in sport, but a part of you is feeling broken and like a failure and different to everyone around you. Totally. It was huge. Because I came from an academic family, my, my siblings were all very successful. A friend told me how I used to hang my head on one side, and that didn't stop till I was 27. I was very shy. Uh, I really was feeling desperate. You're absolutely right. But I think my dyslexia gave me a way to find my way around things. And um, I spent some time in Oxford, and I was a cleaner. And then I managed to wheedle my way into English lectures because I was just love literature and English and then I started working with street theatre and I just wove I I found a way to get myself in you found the wormholes I found the wormholes yeah thank you (laughs) they're great interesting um clearly you moved well on from that because you've since gone on to found five charities all of which are flourishing today We'd love to understand, so back in 1981, age just 23, you founded charity projects in London with Richard Curtis, who's famous for being the writer behind hits such as Four Weddings and a Funeral, The Vicar of Dibley, etc. Now, the initial focus in that charity was tackling homelessness. Is that Actually, correct? Or? Slight, um, Richard Curtis came into my life a little bit later. So when I was 23, I founded an organisation called Charity Projects. I didn't know Richard then. That was, um, and uh, and I founded charity projects with a view to giving a voice to people who wouldn't normally have one, to make sure that we included people we were trying to help in the running of the organisation and making it fun and involving. Okay. Sorry, so I can't That charity, that's okay. That charity um, 
ran for about three or four years. You said, I've forgotten that. When Martin was interviewing me for a book we've just done, I, he, I drove him mad with not being able to remember dates or when things happened. But so charity projects ran for a while. We were involved in some of the, with some of the comedians at that stage. And out of charity projects came Comic Relief. I met Richard. Um, Richard was involved in a couple of the projects that we did um, with charity projects. And then he and I uh, went to Africa together. Um, he went to Ethiopia and I went to Sudan. And as a result of that, we came back and Comic Relief was born. Wow. And that's gone on to raise like... It's huge. £337 million or something like... A billion pounds or billion dollars, yeah. Like just unbelievable, the impact that you've had. Did you imagine that when you set out? It's interesting you talk about impact because I feel I look back now and I've set up a few charities, but still things haven't changed. People aren't being given their voice. Organisations aren't being run by the people that really understand the issues. Charity is still run a lot of the time by people who feel they know best and they give to people. So actually, and I'm getting emotional now, I don't feel I have, which is probably why I'm doing the interview today and I've decided I do want to talk because I don't think we have had that much of an impact. What's impact then, like changing lives or or what is it then? How do you define that word impact? Well, I think for me, the fundamentals of involving the people that you want to help are essential, that you don't give to people. We don't know sitting here what it's like to be measuring out the pieces of white bread that you're giving to your children. We don't know what it's like not being able to get enough food. Not, we just have no idea. So rather than think we do, involve those people that do because they teach us so much. What's the barrier to that being? Because that's such a simple concept and we recognise it in, in each and every one of us. We know we do not want to be told what to do. A toddler doesn't want to be told. When we asked you to remove your bracelet because it was making noise in the background, you said, I don't like to be told what to do. So we know this. What's the barrier to us not joining these dots? I don't know. And I feel I've failed because I've been banging on these doors for so long. And charity's got to move from this giving to to working with. But still, you get people sitting... getting an application form, not visiting the projects, agreeing on the size of money that they'll give. Without doing that, it just seems crazy because I know you've got to go and sniff a project. You know, I think often friends say, and I'm sure you probably both agree, when you walk through the doors of a house, you can feel it. It's the same with charities. You walk through their doors, you can feel it. And what is amazing to me is they can change. They can change really quickly. So you have to keep on visiting. Mm-hmm. And don't, I don't want to put down charities because there's some fabulous ones out there. They're all doing good. I just believe that we've got to stop talking for people. Do you think, though, there has been a shift in, let's say, in philanthropy, there's been a bit of a shift, certainly in Australia, from a sort of um, hands-out to a hands-on model where there is a greater conversation going on around show me how I can measure that this funding is actually going to create, again, here's this impact word. Do you think there's been a shift where people are trying to look for the demonstrations of that change? I think there definitely has been a shift. However, every time I visit a new organisation, they'll say, we've never had anyone visit us again. They'll say, gosh, it's so nice you're interested to speak to us. They'll say, you mean we can come into your office for coffee? We can come and talk to you? 
Now, that's telling us something. Now, we are a very small organisation and uh, I know less every day rather than more. I'm not part of the philanthropic sector. So I, uh, it is, I am a bit of a lone voice, but it's what I feel in my heart every day. Could you describe for our listeners, when you say you're a small organisation, so igniting change is, is what you're referring to, could you just explain what that is? So we're a tiny organisation purposely and we don't want to grow and we're doing exactly what I did with when I set up Charity Projects and then Comic Relief and then another organisation called Pilot Light. We want to give people their own voice. We want to create a bridge so you can introduce people who wouldn't normally meet and whenever you do that we find that sparks fly and we want to have fun. Uh, and we want to change the conversation and we want to involve the people experiencing the issues. We want to, to involve them with all aspects of what we do. And I actually like to bounce it to Sabina because you've been on our visits. Mm-hmm. You've experienced igniting change. I'm not very articulate. Yeah. I find it difficult putting into words what we do. Maybe you could add to the conversation because you've experienced it first time, firsthand many times. And I'd love to thank you for your warmth your generosity your every time we go to a project with you you ask best questions and you make people feel so comfortable oh Jane thank you thank you for saying that and uh, you know it's interesting hearing you say um you're not articulate and you don't know how to describe what you do I have found it difficult when I've talked to so many people about igniting change over the years and people say, but what do they do and where can I give and what, you know, so we have these preconceived ideas of what helping and supporting looks like, which is what you're speaking to. And then when you try and explain the mandate of igniting change, people, this has been my experience, I'm sure it's been yours, are a bit perplexed. They're like, but but what, but, but what do Me they too. do? They're looking for a verb. So and what was your experience then that you, well, that Jane facilitated? the verb is is experiencing is being is connecting and through that comes empathy and connection so getting inside someone else's shoe someone else's viewpoint but not going with a view to there's no call to action there's no invitation that we want you to do this so that then you can do that That's not what it's about. The invitation is come and let it absorb through some kind of emotional osmosis what happens to you. There's there's no measure, there's no metric, but you would not be human if something didn't happen to you in these experiences. So some some of the experiences I've had on the visits through Igniting Change, um, Port Phillip um, Prison, their youth unit, is a place where they're first-time offenders. And so there's such an opportunity to connect with these people who haven't become, you know, repeated offenders, perhaps have made a mistake, one mistake in their life, and and, and then people see the, in Jane's words again, see uh, the label, which is jailbird or um, offender or drug addict or instead of seeing the person. Once you sit in this setting and talk to these young men, those labels dissipate and you hear stories of I'm missing my mum and my sister and I know I did, I did something wrong and I wish I hadn't done it. And, and then even those stories you sink another level deeper and you're just talking human to human. And the, the setting of being in a prison sort of evaporates, well, it did for me in the, in the time that I was there. I've been there a few times. When you leave, I'm changed forever. You can't, you can't pretend you didn't feel. And it's also really important, you know, dignity. The dignity of the people that we're visiting is really important. And I still 
shudder when I see advertisements and they're all around us every day of the sad looking African child mm. and it's there to try and get money and it's not telling a story and it's not moving us on. And it's disempowering for the person totally that it disempowering. represents. And I think there's so many things here in Australia that when I arrived here I was hoping I'd have another child. Um, I couldn't because I became sick and I had to have my ovaries out. But I, I'm just every day I am baffled and confronted by the levels of poverty, the levels of human rights abuses. Yet this beautiful, beautiful country we've got is so rich and it's history and people aren't seeing it. We don't have a shared narrative. We don't look at people like Stan Grant and others where we do not carry the same stories as the people who were here a long time before us. I, I found when I first visited Central Australia, I found a peace. I think there was something about having my feet in the dirt. And I do, you know, I strongly believe that. And meeting um, Indigenous people for the first time, and I think, wow, this is the most awesome culture. And we have so much to learn from them, much more than they have from us. And that's what I feel. Again, that's something I say very often in my life, isn't it, Sabina, I say. You know, you get much more out than you put in. That's what I was thinking about all the visits that I've done is I've learned so much. The storytelling, the experiences that the people that I've met on Igniting Change visits have by far not just given but taught, taught me to see things differently, to keep an open mind. And I wonder if perhaps... In some ways, Jane, one of the frustrations... I can feel a frustration and it's a really honest and authentic response to having so much passion and purpose and action and yet feeling like something's not translating. I think the frustrations keep us on our toes and that's important as an organisation. I don't want to feel safe. I don't want to feel comfortable. I need to be... If I'm going to be really good at my job, I need to be in it. And what's been terrific about... Well, actually, there's nothing terrific about the virus... When the virus hit, we rang up all the organisations we worked with and we asked them what they wanted. And it was the same thing. It was connection. You know, they had children. They weren't connected to the internet. They were meant to be homeschooling, etc. They needed food and they needed emergency care packages. We reached out to our community and with the support of Lauriston School and we asked people what they wanted and they told us and they were just, the list was so humble. You know, there was no meat for a start from anybody and then people rallied round, and the most extraordinary people said Jane I'll go I'll I'll go every week I'll go and buy for x and y and z and I'll deliver it and I think that has changed the way a lot of especially women in Melbourne think I'm getting phone calls saying Jane I had no idea mm. I had no idea Again, because they're feeling it and you've asked the question of the people and said, how can we... You haven't lobbed in a solution, which we see successive governments do and charities, albeit well-meaning. You go to the people who have the need and say, how can we meet your need? And it's not money. Yes. And the per, as, as a person who's wanting to connect and make a difference, I love reading... I, I've spent a long time reading the lists and thinking about the person behind the list who I've never met and thinking they'd like lentils. I wonder what they'll do with the lentils. <laughs> I feel teary thinking about it because it is the um it's it's connecting with as you say the smallest on the smallest level do you see who I am and who my family is and what's important to me and it's not big it's not it's the dignity big thing. it's giving it them the dignity, dignity of being a human is. first 
Well, when we had the first food drop, we were so it was so disappointing because people had obviously just gone to the backs of their cupboards and put things in boxes, and they come and they're sell by dates, and that's when we thought, no, we're not going to do this. Mm. But the other stories, you know, incontinence pads are so expensive. Mm. Young women who've been traumatized by sexual abuse, you know, they many need the pads. You can't afford them. So much you can't afford, which is very basic things and that's a joy for us um to be able to support with and i got a phone call from a girlfriend today who'd heard about a family was supporting of six uh the mother's on her own impacted by domestic violence two of the children have tested positive and it were delivering food and it was just lovely she said can i sign them up to foxtel or stan or put them on the internet for a year now it might not be what the family wants so we said we'll go back and we'll talk to the family because the mother might be quite strict about it she might with five children i would imagine she'll be over the moon um because that's a lot of kids in a not a very big house but people are really thinking now before they call us and i love that it's not about money i love that we've just we've been so we've just changed the whole organization saying no this is what the need is now We'll do it with the help of volunteers. So for people listening, Jane, what can what, what's your invitation to them? I think I'd say start a conversation with someone that you might not normally start a conversation with. Be curious. I think be curious, listen, listen. So few people listen. Some of the things you see in the world and think we can we can affect change, we can go to those people and find out what they need and try and meet that. Do you ever flip into despair and, and a feeling of hopelessness about just a finger in the dike when some of the problems you're dealing with are so wicked and widespread? I do, absolutely, but it never lasts long because my mind will start worrying and we'll try and find a way around that and to be able to do something. Are you a natural sort of solution mindset? Yeah, I think so. yes. And I'm also... Um, I often say I'm not very good at anything, but I'm really good at going to people who are the best at what they do and asking for their advice. And I often feel in all my work, I'm just the puppeteer. And I rarely do we ask somebody to support us or to come with ideas or knowledge or come on a visit and they say no. Because if you really think about why you're asking someone, it's hard for anyone to say no because everybody wants to help. I mean, there is an abundance of love and support around me and us at the moment, which is magical. So, and we don't ask for money and we don't, hopefully we don't over ask, but when we do, people step to the fore. Mm. That's a, it's a wonderful thing. Very, really, people don't say no. Well, you obviously create a platform or a space they, they are comfortable stepping into to bring what they can. Yes. And that's everybody because our community is the people who are homeless are as important as Sabina here is. We've got to, we need to do this together. And I think that recognition that, you know, people are deemed poor or disadvantaged. It's a terrible label to put on anyone because I would say that there's a whole swathe of families and some not so far from here where the children have everything and the parents, but they've got nothing. Mm. And often when you connect those families with a um, 
family from the flats in Collingwood, they find they've got so much in common and they've got so much to give one another. And that's when real change happens. It's a beautiful thing because we are only water. Mm. The idea that any of us are any better than anyone else. And not, not better, not worse, but not different. And something I talk a lot about is looking for the commonality yeah. in, in each other. And I think the reason we see everything from world wars to, you know, marital discourse to conflict in organisations is because people are looking at each other through a lens of difference. What's different about you and me? But if we can think of it like a a Venn diagram, that's when I'm, whenever I'm with people, working with people personally or professionally, I'm always looking for that intersection piece, Mm -hmm. which is so loud for all of us. And what's universal? We talk about that. We are one humanity. There aren't. But it's also a two way thing. So some of the young people that I work with that are challenged, you know, will openly say, I was so, I always thought, you know, all you lot were snobs. I always, you know, that, that, so there's that prejudice from both sides sure, that you have to crack. Yeah. We, we call it igniting change by combining extraordinary lives because every life is an extraordinary life. We'll make sure we put something in uh, in the notes for this episode about how people can actually support the work you're doing. Jane, thank you so much for sharing with us today you say that you just take every day as it comes and I think you make every day count we always end all our episodes with a question given life is ever complex and pretty messy a lot of the time who do you think is doing human well I think Sabina's doing a good job of doing human well she's always very present she uh I, I think being very present is really important and she hears and uh, she's doing it pretty well, I think. Yeah. Sabina. <laughs> I, find that, I find that hard to hear. But thank you. Not but, and thank you. Yes, and. It's true. You, it's true, though. You need to hear it. You are. You're, you're terrific. And I've seen you in many different situations. And you're there. And you don't just walk away either, which is time-consuming. Well, coming from you, Jane, that means the world. So thank you. Thank you for, yeah, I'll treasure, literally treasure those words and for joining us today. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Human Cogs. We know that being human is pretty messy for the best of us and we really hope these conversations challenge what you think you know about yourself and maybe some others in your orbit. And you know, Mads, as a psychologist, I know I'm having a good day at work when people say to me, Sabina, I've never thought about it that way before. That's what we hope your experience will be listening to Human Cogs. So if you want to find out more about other episodes or about this episode, jump on our website at humancogs.com. 